Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business, to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, host Oliver Cadell is joined in the studio by Christoph Malley. Chris is the commercial director for Somewhere Else, a production company based in London that specializes in VR marketing, as well as improving business audience relationships through immersive technology. They work with the likes of Adidas, Samsung, and the Champions League. Today, Chris talks about the artist's perspective, the need of a purpose in storytelling when creating immersive content, the economics of the immersive media market, and the responsibilities of the creator. Christoph Malik, welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast. Thank you for stopping by today. How are you? Very good. Thanks, Holly. Nice to be here. Just to give you a bit of a context, uh, what's the date today? 26th of June? 27th, yes. 27th. Weather's good. We're, we're expecting heat wave in London, but it just didn't happen. The weather suddenly changed. Yeah, yeah, which is good, in my opinion. It's yeah. perfect for watching the World Cup in the pub. World Cup, that's another big thing happening right now. It's a World Cup fever everywhere. I, I'm going to assume you support France. Yes. Of course. What's your second favourite team? Uh, Belgium. Belgium. Yeah. And Belgium is playing England tomorrow. Yeah. And they're going to win. By the time you're listening to this episode, you will know who won the World Cup and all the results. Interesting. Right, anyway, let's get back to the business. Uh, Chris, uh, for our audience, can you tell a few words about yourself, about the company you represent, and just to give a little bit of a context before we dive into the big questions? Sure. Um, So I'm the co-founder of a company called Somewhere Else, and we are a creative agency. We're based here in London, and we specialize um, in immersive technologies. Um, basically, we help uh, businesses connect uh, with people. It could be, you know, people externally, such as consumers or prospects, and that's when we do a lot of marketing campaigns. We work for Adidas, we work for Samsung, for the Champions League, and things like that. And more and more, we work uh, with people wanting to connect with uh, with businesses, wanting to connect with people internally as well. Um, and that can be through, you know, giving better education and training. Uh, changing the way they design products and all those new basically value propositions that immersive tech is bringing to the table. Do you come from another industry? Um, traditionally, most of the guests that I talk to have worked in other industries and then uh, somehow ended up working for the immersive tech um, sector. What was your personal journey there? Uh, yeah, well, that's the interesting thing about immersive tech is like you know it was it was nowhere for ninety nine percent of us like four or five years ago. Um, Personally, I did um, I did a business school. Actually, uh, I work in a strategic consultancy. Uh, then I work in a music label here in London, uh, experimental music label called El Nitro. It's very very strange music. Uh, that I will forward to you after this podcast. Um, and kind of wanted to merge the two. Uh, came back to London, and for five years I worked in um, consultancy for uh, digital and social media. Um, and it was it was amazing to see how far that industry went between 2009 and basically 2015. 
Um, and then by 2015, I realized that the same thing might happen to immersive uh, immersive uh, te- uh, technologies. Uh, and I met with Julien, uh, who is now my partner, in, um, in a pub uh, here in London, a bit randomly, meaning on LinkedIn. And he showed me the Night Cafe. Have you seen it? Uh, it's that experience with uh, Vincent van Gogh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it, it's it's an old experience. Like right now, if you look at it, it, it's nothing special. But back then, you put on the headset. It was the first time for me. It was an Oculus DK1. And you put on the headset and you find yourself in a 3D recreation of the Night Cafe, his, his painting from 1886. And you can walk around and you can go in the back room uh, where someone's playing the piano and Vincent is here playing playing his pipe. And so you leave inside a 200-year-old painting, which if you love a uh, uh, Van Gogh is, the way he paints is very immersive in a way, like the, the brush strokes are circular and they kind of draw you in. I mean, he might have been a, a 3D artist if he was born uh, if he was born today. And um, and yeah, it's just, it just blew my mind. And, and I, I, I left my previous job uh, right after that because I s- told myself this is, this is an absolute new way to tell, to tell stories and, and brands need to tell stories in new ways um, because no one's listening to them anymore. Um, so there's something to be done here. And that's why we, we created the agency. Very interesting. I can totally relate to that experience because when I saw it for the first time, there was something special about it. it it's very simple, but it definitely had that sort of very effective way of communicating the potential of VR. It was just also it was it was a real work of love. Like you could see you could see the work of because it was called the Night Cafe, but it was taking elements from some of the the, the other paintings. And so if you sing Van Gogh, you probably remember some flowers, uh the, the sunflowers, I think. Um and and the guy who created it, I forgot his name, is he went like, okay, how how do I take those stolen flowers, which were a 2D image, and turn it into into something that is both three dimensional yet respects the the unique style of of uh, of uh, of Van Gogh? And it was just it was not an approximation of it, or it was not a 3D world inspired by Van Gogh. It was really like I'm going to make that painting a place that you can live in, and and yeah, suddenly you enter a world. And if if you consider that an artist has a world in their mind and the way they see reality is is different suddenly you can you can live in that world it's 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 a it's a, a, a proposition for art and storytelling there was there's just i mean if you love storytelling or art in any ways it, it could not not blow your mind uh, and that's exactly what it did for me absolutely yeah and i think just all these years later i, I think that piece still stands yeah, maybe it's it's a bit like uh, you know the, um, the 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 train ar- arriving at the at the station, like the first uh, 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 movie from the Lumiere bro- uh, brothers, where the legend goes that when he was played uh, back then, people in what was to become cinemas would like jump out in fear that the train was actually coming to to uh, 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 to get them. Now it looks ridiculous when you go you know watch a Marvel movie or something. Uh, and and maybe it was the same with Van Gogh. It was the first time some people had had uh, had that uh, that illusion, and therefore it stays stays there. Let's move on to the company uh, somewhere else. Can you give us a little bit more insight about what you guys do? What you guys do differently, and what you're focusing on today? Okay, sure. Um, so what we do, as I said, is really help help uh, uh, organization connect with people through through immersive tech. Um, and the reason why I'm saying that is um, is to differentiate what we do from uh, from a production studio. Um, I really see immersive technology as 
as a potential new answer to old problems. Uh, these problems can be how do I connect with my customers? Um, how do I help someone choose a product? How do I teach someone a concept? How do I visualize a new, uh, a, a new, a new building? Like those are all questions that don't have anything to do necessarily with a piece of technology, and the technology has evolved to answer to those questions. Uh, and immersive tech is just the next frontier for that. And the way we do things really is to try to dig into the problem deeply uh, and thoroughly, not you know dropping the word like strategy because hey, it's always good to drop it in, uh, but really kind of applying what me and my founders have learned in our years of consultancy um, to help companies understand that in a lot of cases, what they think they can get with uh, immersive tech is less than what they really can or what they really want. And to really like um, reframing the, the 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 problem is something we do a lot. We have we built our own framework um, uh, called Adaptive Strategic Framework that helps us look at things uh, in different way in opportunity areas. And it's really kind of at the end of that framework, it's like seven steps. It's like steps number six. You're like, Okay, now let's look at this through the lens of immersive tech, and bring a uh, and bring an answer, rather than, and I'm I'm keen to get your opinion on that. When a lot of clients come to you and say, "I want a 360 video," or "I want a a an HC Vive experience," and not necessarily having a a purpose, not necessarily having thought about the audience, the touch points, uh, the messages, um, the emotional journey that they want to bring people through. Um, and yeah, I think that, that, that that's where we're taking the problem um, in that way. So I guess what you're saying is that um, appropriate context is everything and that it needs to have a purpose. And there needs to be a, a, a process of evaluation and the strategy development before you go into the production stage in order to inform your decision-making process, be it creatively or technically, beforehand, as opposed to just sort of jumping on a new flashy tech and saying, I like this, I want this, I don't know why, but let's just go for it. Exactly. Maybe I can give you a, an example um, of, of how, how that kind of process would work. Uh, when we worked for Adidas, um, they came to us uh, and they already had filmed uh, 360 content. So they had filmed those two American climbers uh, in Corsica climbing this crazy mountain for the first time in 30 years or something like this. And they came to us to say, all right, we want to do your 360 film. We have the footage. We need you to do some motion graphics, some voiceover, and basically tie it all together in a nice uh, five-minute film. This is something that you can do. It's, it's fairly easy. But we took a step back and asked them, okay, okay, why, why do you want to do this? Oh, yeah, we're opening 70 shops in China uh, for our new like uh, uh, outdoor brand. Okay, so you have space and you have staff. Yes, we do. Okay, interesting. Who are you talking to? Who's your audience? I say, oh, we call them uh, daring natural achievers. They are young guys and girls in their early 20s who are very active, very outdoorsy, who are willing to explore the world and potentially take up a new sport. Okay, so you've got space, you've got the staff, you've got the scale, importantly, and you have got people who want to, to exercise, to move around. And you're going to sit down those guys on a stool and, and put a, a Gear VR on their face and have them watch a 360 movies for seven minutes? That's, you, that's a missed opportunity. And they didn't really understand why. So we had to educate them about you know, room scale VR, 
Uh, and so what we did in the end is is an HTC Vive experience um, where there was a 3D recreation of the mountain. Uh, you could walk around that mountain. You could select various hotspots on that mountain and be transported into a 360 video corresponding to that moment of the climb in reality. But at the end of the experience, when you were reaching the top, uh, uh, in real life, one of the climbers fell down 20 meters. She didn't die or anything, but she fell down. You see that happening in 3D on the side of the mountain. You see the little 3D characters falling down. And when that happens, you get projected into her body and you complete the climb yourself with your own hands. Uh, first person POV, a bit like the climb, the game, if you want. Um, and it's about, you know, you're climbing about 30 meters. It lasts for about two, uh, two minutes. Um, so that's what we did. Um, we demoed it in a lot of, of, of you know, conferences ourselves. Obviously, the climbing part, the active climbing part was the most successful. But more importantly, is looking at the emotional journey that we built. As you start the experience, you have a sense of awe because, well, it's beautiful, it's Corsica. Um, then you build a little bit of the tension with the 360 videos because, you know, you still can feel kind of the vertigo in 360 videos and, and those guys are doing pretty incredible things. And then you get transported on the side of the rock. So you have absolute fear. Suddenly you're on the side of the rock and there's a, a kilometer of, of, of pure emptiness uh, uh, below you. And by the way, about 20% of people have to stop the experience at that point, which corresponds more or less to the uh, uh, people who have uh, a vertigo in real life. And then, you, and then you climb and when you complete the climb, you have a sense of achievement. So you go, you know, sense of awe, tension, fear, and achievement. That's exactly what you get when you climb, for real. And so it's not about the product. Uh, it's not about, hey, here's the shoe or here's the jacket. It's about giving you the experience that the product is unlocking. And then the product becomes um, just like an enabler for you to have that experience. And you're already in the shop when you get experience. You're already surrounded by the staff. You have all sorts of products around you. But if the experience really got you, then you're going to buy uh, the, the product. So that's an illustration of how to, how to, to turn the problem around and use a technology in a way that the client did not expect, but to achieve objectives that are strategic objectives, not the, not the gimmick because room scale is better than 360 or anything like that. That's really interesting. And it kind of uh, brings us nicely to my next question, which was what makes storytelling through VR special? I suppose you can talk about quite a few things there, but um, what you just talked about, the appropriate context and uh, making it relevant and thinking through every single touch point does make it special, doesn't it? That's That makes it special from a uh, brand uh, a, a, a perspective. The idea, firstly, there's not one kind of storytelling in, in, in VR. Uh, telling a story in 360 has nothing to do with telling a story in uh, room-scale VR, which has nothing to do with telling a multi-user or multiplayer story in room-scale VR, which is very different from AR, which is very different from MR. So there's no such thing as immersive storytelling. The second aspect, which is interesting is the the relationship between the, the 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 author the creative and the audience is is completely changed um in traditional media like cinema you have you have the the, the creator and and, uh, and and the audience the audience is uh, is passive they are they are spectators whereas you know as um as chris milk put it and everyone you become uh, you become a visitor or uh, an, an actor in um in, uh, in VR, typically in, uh, in immersive storytelling. The good example uh, that I use all the time is the shower scene from Psycho. You remember, the, you remember the, 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 that scene? Mm -hmm. Hitchcock. Hitchcock, exactly. It's, it's, so, you know, like she, um, the killer has the knife 
and you don't see the knife going into the skin, but you hear like kind of the violin sounds basically kind of mimicking uh, the violence of the knife. It's all, it, it's, it's the magic of, of Hitchcock, you know, he's, he's taking uh, the toolbox of, of cinema editing and using it incre- incredibly well for you to feel that violence and that shock without actually making it gore or, uh, or obscene. Now, if you were to film that exact same scene in 360 or recreate it in, in room scale, it would be completely different. You would, you would choose whether to look at the killer, look at the victim, whether to see the knife or not. You would feel a lot more like a voyeur. You would wonder what your role is in that, in that scene. And I think that, that completely changed the, 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 the relationship. And that's, that's the first thing is you become the, the creator. You have to let uh, um, your audience become the creator. The second thing is, um, is, is, is presence and embodiment. When you, are, when you exist in, in a world in that your brain is tricking you into, believe that in, into believing that, that you're there, um, you're making, again, the, the, your audience the, the hero or the main protagonist of, uh, of that world, which is, um, which is a huge opportunity for, for, for brands. I'm not only going to build a memory, I'm not only going to give you something immersive, I'm going to, to build you a memory that you're a hero of a world that you would not be able to access otherwise. Suddenly you can climb a mountain in Corsica and only the very best climbers in the world can do. And you did it as well. And, and that I think is, is, is very powerful when it comes to, to storytelling. You, as the creator, you building a world uh, for the audience to exist and, 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 and to live in. Based on your experience, um, you guys have worked on a, a wide variety of projects um, and pretty much everything you just mentioned um, as, as, as far as uh, the types of storytelling goes. Overall, what do you think, uh, what are the biggest challenges for not only VR, let, let's just call it uh, immersive content producers today? What is the bil- biggest challenge for them? Finding clients. <laughs> um, which, which relates to the fact that the industry is not quite ready, is the landscape of content producers already oversaturated and does not align with a demand or perhaps the the issue goes deeper and there's there are more layers of complexity there the economics of the market and and not here today um creating um creating amazing vr experiences is 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 doable today and it's being done and there are tons tons of great experiences and i don't think the there's not enough content uh, uh, you know, which is a problem that's been uh, pointed out a lot a couple of years ago, still holds true anymore. I just think that the, um, it's very difficult for producers to be able to justify that they can reach the scale that they would need to make a project profitable. When you have like kind of fifty million PlayStation Four or something like that, it's it's you you, you can do something. Uh, but when you have only like two million VR headsets. You need a market share that's so huge for you for your content to make money that it doesn't. Uh, it's not really there. Which is why all the best, the very best experiences, um, you know, like Firebird and Notes on Blindness and, and and Life of Us and all of those, all of those great projects, uh, none of them made money. They were paid for by basically the French government or uh, the Art Council or, or things like this because because the economics are not uh, are not here yet. Uh, and economics are not here yet, in part because the hardware is not. Um, if you if you think about it, let's not even talk about cardboard. Um, the Samsung Gear, which was the best sold headset, is still 
a plastic case that you put on your head or you put a phone inside. A phone could be the S6 designed in 2013 as a phone. It's not a VR headset, it's a phone in a plastic case. Um, the HTC Vive, it's the best piece of kit there is out there, but it belongs to university labs. We have so many sensors and, and plugs. I mean, when my dad came to, 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 to try it at home, he made me feel like I was weird with all those like all, all that equipment. It's not, it's not ready. So now we have Oculus Go, first standalone headset, but it's still only three degrees of freedom, which is not real VR. So I don't think we have the first uh, kind of like Gen 1 equivalent of the iPhone yet, because this will be a, a standalone six degree of freedom headset with much better uh, definition uh, uh, that, that it has today. And that's probably 18 to 24 months uh, uh, down the line. When we have this, I think it will uh, it will take off, but it will take off in a way that's not like the phone or, or the TV. I think too many people expected VR is going to replace TV or it's going to replace the phone. And I think it's a medium that's psychologically too intense to become something that people do for you know hours on end. Um, I love roller coasters, but I wouldn't take a roller coaster to work uh, every morning. Yeah, I, I must agree with the fact that it's it's not something that is going to completely change our lives um, and totally replace things that we used to use on a regular basis. It's it's a thing in its own right, and it's a, it's an addition to something. It it's an amazing enabler, and it enables us to do things differently or prior without this technology. And we're going to come back to that and talk about the VR in the context of uh, education and training. I, th- I think it's a, it's a it's a valid point. It has many applications, but they're very specific and it only works when it's necessary and appropriate. It's it's not a passive experience, let's shall we say. Unlike AR, which perhaps you can utilize whilst doing other things, operating other technologies, this one completely takes you into another world and it almost hacks your biochemical, uh, physiological and psychological processes within your body. It, it does. And there's, um, there's something that I don't have an answer to, and I'm sure it's being explored uh, by people who know a lot more than us, which is when you, do, when you are in a VR experience, it's generally very pleasurable. You have a lot of fun, a lot of intense fun. And when you take off the headset, you have this rush of serotonin, like, you know, you were, you, you, you had good times. Uh, yet, um, you're not necessarily drawn to do it again and again and again and again. And so there's a conscious fun, but it seems to be a subconscious um, thing that tells your brain, all right, that was cool. But at the same time, you were completely, as you say, isolated for, from your surroundings, which I think deep down, we used to be, uh, praise before we were on top of the of, of, of the food chain. You know, deep down we are animals. We wired to be aware of our surroundings at any times to you know survive and protect ourselves from from danger. And I think there must be something deep down that says, "All right, I was fooled. My brain was fooled, and I don't want to get fooled again." And and I don't know how. I don't know if the hardware can solve that because I don't think this is a hardware problem. I think this is a this is a <laughs> humanware problem or, or however you want to call it. And um, and which is why mix, uh, mixed reality is going to be interesting because are we going, going to be able to find a threshold that basically says this is an immersive experience where I am interacting and believing in objects and characters and environments that are not here, 
but I at the same time have enough clues about my real environment so that I don't reach that uh, kind of like subconscious uh, red flag. I, 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 I don't know, but I think whoever solves that uh, then we'll have a product that people will use as they use TV or their mobiles or, 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 or video games uh, with that kind of like deep level of psychological safety that I don't think VR is, will ever be a, able to really bring you. I, th- I think the analogy he used just now with the roller coaster, some people just don't like speed and heights and have all kinds of phobias, but for majority, it's a very it would be considered as amazing experience and everybody would have tried it at least once. And when you do that, you experience a huge amount of adrenaline, dopamine, serotonin. It's just, you get all kinds of hormonal injections and you feel amazing, but would you do it again? Would you do it regularly? Absolutely not. And perhaps there's a depth and there's a complexity in, in this question in the sense that potentially it's a cumulative effect of all kinds of things. And it just comes down to the fact that... Um, it's a cognitive overload and because it's it's put together using ingredients that haven't been researched to an extent that can give us a very robust data that can confirm whether or not this experience is going to provide a certain result. Um, you know, if you have graphics, you have interactivity, you have agency, you have all kinds of psychological threats going depending on the on the narrative or the or the experience you're doing. You have spatial audio. There's so much going on. Um the the you know the hardware itself. Um and like you said, it's the hardware probably won't solve the problem. The content may or may not solve the problem. Perhaps the solution is that all these things will come together in a more refined form and then once we've got the more kind of experience more more years uh, of making content and more robust data that has been provided by research groups then collectively the industry can start developing things that are a little bit more predictable a little bit more suitable for various uses and applications you know be it a um, again, for training education or medical applications or entertainment, gaming, and so on and so forth. You know, absolutely. And there's also a question of the, the responsibility of the creator. I did an experience for uh, Orangina, you know, the, the drink, a um, couple of years ago at a, at a conference, and they had brought a real ski lift, so a physical real ski lift, and there was a little like a kind of a, a gate made of iron in front of the of the lift. And and when I was queuing, I saw what happened. You got on the lift, uh, then you stood up, went on the ledge, it vibrated a little bit, and then it fell by about 20 centimeters in real life. Uh, and then you would grab a can of orangina. So I kind of knew what was, you know, what to expect once I was in VR. I get into VR. Uh, so I sit on the real ski lift. I find myself on a virtual one in the mountain. There's a storm. Um, and there's a guide, you know, 30 meters below is like, Okay, come on up. Come on, uh, 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 are we coming to get you? Uh, walk on the on the on the gate. So I, I walk on the gate in reality and in virtual reality. It shakes a bit because of the wind, and then the guy tells me, "Be careful! There's a big like a uh, gust of wind coming. Hold on tight." I hold on tight. I knew it was going to fall by twenty centimeters, except in VR it falls by thirty meters, and I fall to the ground by thirty meters, and then I'm in a, this blue environment what is nothing but a can of uh, of uh, orangina almost a godlike uh, uh, object and i grab it grab it in real life and i drink it and i was like okay fine it was a fun experience and that night i had nightmares 
and the following night as well, and the following night as well. And that's because Orangina killed me. They killed me in that VR experience. So they made my brain believe that I had died and also that paradise was somehow inhabited by cans of uh, Orangina. Um, as a brand, you don't want to kill your customers. It's not, it's not a great idea. Uh, um, but similarly, um, if, if that experience had that effect on me, even though, you know, even though rationally I knew what, what happened and what was happening, I get fooled by presence and presence got me and presence deeply reached back out to me in my sleep. What does that mean if you're playing a game where you, where you're killing people, you know, or if you keep on playing zombie games, or if you keep on playing games where you can do things with your body that you can't do in, in, in reality, um, I think the fact that we cannot spend a lot of time on, on, in VR is a good thing in that way because if we were, then then you're building you know habits, uh, deep psychological beliefs uh, in what you can and cannot do, and what you should and should not do. Uh, that can that can be very uh, dangerous uh, further down the line. If we play the the, the, the the dystopian view, or very good if if we play the, the optimistic one, which is there's been a lot of tests at uh, you know Stanford University at the Virtual Human Interaction Lab um, about racism bias and gender bias and self-compassion uh, and age bias. And basically, we can make people subconsciously and durably feel young, feel younger, or we can reduce the implicit bias, uh, implicit racism bias towards people of another gender or race uh, uh, for, for a while. We can also make people more uh, empathetic and generous and helpful towards uh, one another with VR. Um, it's been help. Uh, it's been used in uh, in to help uh, with uh, depression. When basically there's an experience where you are giving advice to yourself. You ask a question to yourself, and you basically embody the the therapist, and you give advice to yourself, and then you embody back you basically on the sofa, and you see you see you see yourself giving advice. And so there's all this like self compassion loop. So a lot of things have been studied where. VR can have the deep uh, uh, subconscious impact in a positive way, but it can also have it in a negative way. At the end of the day, it's it's a it, it's a um, it's a tool. You know, it's a it's a hammer. You know, you can you can use a hammer to build a house, or, or can use a hammer to stick it in, in your eye and kill you. It's still still a hammer. Um, so where where it's going to go, I don't know. But I think the question of responsibility is not as much on the table as it should. Yeah, the whole ethics. Um, aspect is still very much in an agile state, and because it's so new and it's so it, it, it's it's changing so quickly, um, there are almost no standards, there are no regulations. Um, it's like you said, it's 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 generation one. Every, everything is up for grabs, and big mistakes will be made before we will learn and move on. Uh, from that, and um, I suppose just the nature of any anything that is new to us, and the bigger the potential is of this technology, then deeper all these issues are. But also the the greater the benefits once you had a chance to to crack the code in a sense. I suppose we're going to see lawsuits, you know, in the coming years about people being hurt psychologically, physically within VR potentially. Uh, it's already happening. Correct me if I'm wrong, I believe uh, a number of people died uh, whilst looking for Pokemons. 
whilst playing Pokemon Go game because they just ended up in um, in physical locations where it was simply too dangerous. But they were utterly immersed in the whole process of finding a new rare Pokemon that just ended up jumping off the cliff by accident and things like that. So anything can happen. I'm I'm curious to hear your opinion about where do you think this is all heading. And I appreciate it's very hard to predict things that are going to happen in coming years, but perhaps in in from based on your personal experience and, and work you do, where do you think things are on the sort of horizon three to twelve months period? For VR? For for VR or perhaps XR industry in general. Okay. Um I think for VR there is a um a fragmentation of uh the value proposition it's um it's very clear um there are very clear different uses of, of vr before like in a year two years ago it was all vr is this new things no, no one knew now you have a location-based vr entertainment uh, have you tried the void in in westfields uh, yes i the, have the, the um, i had a pleasure about several weeks ago really liked it but at the same time i felt like it wasn't quite there yet um, and I know that already it, it can be done better, but better means more time, more resources. And uh, quite frankly, um, just for for our international audience, um, I believe it costs £35 a ticket per person for 10-minute experience, uh, which is equivalent of $60 or €40, Euros, something like that. Um, it's quite pricey for for short period of time. Considering it, you can go to movies for uh, about 30-25% of that yeah. uh, and enjoy something that lasts for a couple of hours. But I appreciate these things take a lot of resources to manufacture. But what was interesting was, um, was this is is the business model of, of the void. It's, I'm with you. It's only the beginnings. It's it's very pricey and technologically it's amazing, uh, but it still uh, could be done better. But it sold out every weekend. It sold out. Uh, I had a chat with the guys there. Uh, people come through word of mouth. They don't come through through you know like big splash advertising. And when I was looking at the queue, I remember I, I counted. Um, there were sixty percent girls. Uh, and it was couples. It was people coming with their dads and and uh, and the families. And I think. And I think uh, the model of the arcade game, you know, the, uh, the the arcade room like we had in the 80s is coming back. Location-based VR is something, you know. It's like kind of like high-intensity group entertainment. And it it's completely uh, in the times when you think of um, uh, escape rooms and, and experiential dinner parties and all of this. Like we live in the age of experience where people kind of go out to have experiences with one another as opposed to, as opposed to buying products. And I think that fits right in. And so that's one vertical. Um, then you have, uh, obviously, home entertainment, uh, whether it's video game or porn or everything in between. Um, you have you have VR, you know, being used for for uh, by that population for, you know, uh, entertainment at home. And then you have other verticals that are very precise. Uh, VR in healthcare has very precise use, you know, treating wound, treating uh, uh, depression, helping with recoveries, um, very, very basic. And same with training, whether it's skills-based training where I teach you how to use your hands or put you in situations that are too costly or dangerous to recreate in reality or knowledge-based training where um, I'm I'm giving you knowledge spatially. If you want to learn about the heart or if you want to learn about planets 
and I write down with words on paper how a heart works, or I write down about the solar system, you're not going to get it. If I show you a 2D sketch, you get it a little bit more, but it's still very abstract. If I put you in there, in space, or if I give you a three-dimensional heart to manipulate, now, now you're learning better. Um, so that's another, uh, another uh, a value, uh, a value proposition. And I think that's where it's going in the next three to, to 12 months is companies specializing in a, in a vertical and the end user, whether it's you at, at Westfields or whether it's Barclays wanting, wanting to train their, their executives, um, understanding better and better uh, what it can bring to the, to, uh, to, 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 to the businesses or their lives on a, on, a, on a daily basis. That's VR. And then mixed reality is the big question mark. Uh, Magic Leap is notoriously uh, secretive. Um, we don't know exactly how it's going to be, but there's this idea that we discussed before of uh, the internet on things, the IoT, but in a different way. And if we manage to bridge the gap between the real world and um, the wealth of data, of digital data we have about that world, and then the world becomes a display through your glasses, and we can apply directly, visually, that data on top of the real world, that opens up a range of application that's, that's, that, that's completely amazing. That brings in computer vision, that brings in AI in terms of, of the UX using voice and things like that. But suddenly the way we're going to interact with, with the world around us is going to be completely different. That's probably more of a like two to three, three years uh, uh, horizons before you see people in, in the streets wearing anything like, anything like that. But that I believe is going to be an even bigger uh, uh, revolution than, than, than VR. So you, you touched on several threats, essentially. Content production companies, uh, be it product or entertainment content or whatever the nature of the content is, from generalist direction, going to become more specialist and to focus on certain verticals. Also, economics of the industry. Um, content is very resource-demanding process, uh, requires a lot of specialist skills and talent to come together uh, to work on these projects. And essentially, if there is no return of investment, it, it just can't go on for, for, for long. So we see location-based entertainment generating I, I'm going to assume it's going to generate is generating profits because I happen to live near Westfield, and every time I go to to do a bit of shopping, I see queues and queues of people queuing up, and so hopefully the market is looking really healthy there. The second one is the kind of a utility tool that is used by a lot of big corporate companies need to train their staff, and they're constantly looking how to making the process more efficient as well as effective for for the benefit of the quality of the training. So these are kind of several things that you, you, you've mentioned. And magically, mixed reality, uh, an open question. It is. There are, so I had a chat with um, a woman named Savannah Niles. She's head of social experiences uh, for Magic Leap. And, um, and she said a couple interesting things. Um, one is she said less is more. Uh, and she mentioned the trade-off between the computing power of the device and uh, the way it looks. So you can have something that's very uh, powerful, but you can have to carry a truck behind you at all times. Or you can have something that looks stylish, but the computing power is not that amazing. The HoloLens is a good example. It's great because it's uh, self-contained and, and portable and, uh, and untethered, 
but it's it's limited from a computational power uh, point of view. So that's the first thing she said, and that seemed to indicate that Magic Leap is going to be less about um, high-definition whales floating in the sky and more about enhancing the real world uh, with data and putting, you know, one object he- here or there, um, but not creating immersive worlds uh, in and of themselves. The second thing that she said is, I asked her the question, do you see Magic Leap primarily as a communication tool? And she said, yes, absolutely. It is a communication tool. Um, and in that way, it's it's fairly easy to imagine how all those social VR um, spaces, uh, 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 space VR, uh, high fidelity and stuff. So you imagine you arrive in a, whatever, um, uh, a lounge, a big lounge, and you have the, and, and like 50 people there. They all have an, an avatar, uh, which can look like a robot, for example. And you can walk to each of those guys in room scale VR. And when I'm next to you, obviously the, the sound uh, is, is specialized as well. And we can talk. So I see your avatar, I see your hands. Um, I see the movements of your head. I see your mouth, uh, your mouth open and close when you talk, um, and and we have a, a discussion. At the moment, it happens in VR, but really, you don't really care about the lounge environment. It's all it's it's all about communicating. What matters is that I I hear you and I somehow see a representation of you that gives me a form of social presence that I can believe in. Um, with Magic Leap. This is going to be happening. So I'm I'm going to be able to call you in, uh, and maybe together we put a live stream. Uh, so you you in West London, I'm in East London. Uh, we want to watch the game together. I'm in my living room, you you in yours. We both project a live stream of the World Cup game on the on the wall, and I project your avatar on my left on the sofa. You project me on, on your right on your sofa, and I just see your avatar, and we can wave and we can talk, and we have some kind of a presence, but I'm still in my living room. I still see my real surroundings. I can stay in that kind of social uh, environment with you for hours, whereas I wouldn't do that in VR because of what we mentioned uh, before. And so I think for communication, whether personal or professional, um, is going to change a lot. Having a conference call where I have an avatar sitting at a table uh, uh, in front of me where we can play with spatial objects together, where we can look at presentations or videos or what have you in the, in the same time, it's going to bring collaboration without co-location uh, to the table in a way that finally is easy and makes sense. Um, and that, that I think is going to be very big for, 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 for Magic Leap. So one is going to be collaboration and communication and the other one is going to be augmenting your surroundings the internet on things, augmenting your surroundings in real times uh, with, with with personalized information. I walk around. If I have facial recognition, uh, and you in front of me, I can I can show all kinds of data about you around yourself. Professional data, for example, if I'm at a networking event, uh, I'm walking around in the streets, and I want to know about you know the architectural story of the building surrounding me. I can have a layer about architecture. I can have a layer about um, uh, I can have a layer about uh, the commercial aspect of things and see all the discounts uh, in the streets. I can have a layer about the, the police reports in that street over the past 10 years. I can imagine all sorts of things where I bring uh, uh, information about the real world in the real world. I don't know how far the technology is. I have no idea, but that's where it's going, clearly. Let's switch the gear um, and talk about something you just touched, which is audio. I'm curious to hear your personal opinion Audio is obviously represents one of our key senses of experiencing this world and often 
referred as a 50% of the experience. And in some ways it is, and in some ways it isn't. It really depends on what that experience is. Um, would like to hear your perspective. Do you find that aspect of content production process extremely relevant and important? Or do you find it more auxiliary supporting element as opposed to a key element that can essentially make or break the deal? No, it's, it's, it is absolutely a key element, a key element that can make, make or break the deal. Um, but it's a harder one to sell. Um, it's easier to sell a pound of, of budget to be spent on CG than a pound of budget to be spent on sound, simply, I guess, because sound is invisible. Um, and it is something that, because you work in sound, you know how sound participates in presence. You know how sound participates in building up, um, you know, uh, uh, emotional involvement uh, as well. You know why 3D sound versus st uh, stereo is going to change your perception of the experience uh, completely. Uh, but for your clients, it's hard for them to realize. They, For them, they're a lot more obsessed by, if I spend a little bit more money on that character, I can have the render, you know, the, the aspect of the fur look a little bit better. That's something tangible that they can see and and, and, and measure, um, which I think is the curse of of um, of, uh, of immersive sound, if you want. It's, it's, it's incredibly crucial, but it's very, uh, very hard to... To, uh, to to sell and it's almost the the, the same in, in cinema I mean the, there's a lot more awards for photography and and CGI than there are for 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 for, for sound effects and, uh, and 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 music simply because I, I guess it is more more blatantly uh, visible do you think that content suffers because of that because on average more people allocate more budget onto other things. As a result, the potential of the the sonic aspect of that product is not reached to, I shouldn't say maximum, but perhaps as opposed to hitting those sort of 85 to 95% or towards 100, you kind of end up staying somewhere halfway through and a lot more things could be done and things could be done much better because quality requires time and resources. Do you think that potentially slowing down things on the fundamental level, like it's it has this accumulative effect, or do you think that those sort of effects are quite minor and really don't project any influence on the overall uh, situation? I made this question really convoluted. <laughs> I hope it makes sense. No, no, it makes sense. Um, I think at the moment, on on most projects, if not every project, it never happens. You say, "Oh, we have enough time and enough money to make it exactly the way we want." That that simply never happens uh, at at the moment, um, and and corners are being cut, and 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 the sunny corner is is being cut first. Um, I think there are a lot of things to solve in terms of the um, the understanding of of immersive storytelling uh, from the client uh, 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 perspective before we can reach. Where, where TVC is, you know, when you're making an automotive commercial for the Super Bowl, you know, there's no, there's no cutting corners. The, the level of expectations is incredibly high. And somehow for brands, the level of expectation has not been that high for VR, which is why you had some terrible cardboard experiences that looked and sounded so ugly that I think they were, um, they were detrimental to the, to the industry in general. I've met, I don't know how many agencies I've met where the executive creative director of a global agency was like, you know, I tried, I tried VR, I tried Google Cardboard two years ago. It's shit. 
that's it, done. That's the technology for him. Um, and I think it's it's a little bit uh, the same with sound. There's a lot of education to be to be done on 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 why sound matters and for people, not not in the way that look at this experience. It's terrible because partly sound was not good, but more like have that experience and realize how sound is great. Educating a, a client around that is is important. Chris, um, so you've been working in the industry for several years now. Um, I would like to hear whether or not there's still something that you would like to try or haven't had a chance to do in VR? There's so many things. Um, I think I think a multi-user experience um, uh, is something that I'm really uh, uh, interested in. Uh, when I say multi-user is um, basically bringing immersive theater inside VR. So have a VR experience where you, you, you Oli, you're just, just a normal player and you are in that um, basically unlimited creatively uh, VR world and you are interacting uh, with, with real characters that are basically uh, 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 theater actor, professional actors in mocap suit uh, in real time. And I think you can create incredible uh, adventures if that was the case. Imagine the Star Wars experience that you did, but if rather than having a pre-programmed silent uh, Darth Vader you had one that you could really interact with and every final fight would be completely uniquely yours to have and the dialogue would be completely yours to have. I think yeah, bringing the magic of immersive theater but unlimited with, uh, with VR because you, know, you, know, you don't have a production uh, budget limit to create a set. Uh, it can be anywhere. Um, that I think would be, would be super fun. What was your favorite project that you've been involved with and why? The favorite project we've done is one we've done for France Television, uh, French equivalent of BBC, which was a collaborative escape room. So a real escape room in the real world, uh, in the middle of which there was a, a, a HTC Vive, and the person putting on the Vive would fi uh, find themselves uh, in that exact same room in VR, but in a different moment in time and space. Well, actually they would find themselves um, in the VR headset in the consciousness of the victim. And so the two players in that escape room, one in VR, one in real life, would have to collaborate, exploring the memories of the victim uh, and exploring the real room, collaborate together to escape. To give you an example, um, to make it more clear, um, that was the story of a girl being kidnapped and locked in a basement for years and had a baby there. And one day she wakes up and the baby's gone. And so she needs to remember what happens to, to her to find a baby, but also those memories can be too painful and drive her crazy. So that's basically, you have to escape that, that room for her to find, uh, find her baby. And when you arrive, the guy who puts on the headsets hears and sees the victim obsessing about how, how messy the room is right now. And so you understand that in real life, you need to clean up the room. Um, so you put back the baby's bed together and when you put the stuffed, uh, the, the, the stuffed uh, doll back in the bed because there was a sensor in the doll and a sensor in the bed, you connect them together without noticing that, it triggers a second uh, phase in the VR. So that's, it's not VR and real life working in parallel in a similar set. It's really the two dimensions interacting with one another. And that is my favorite project because I think at the time it was a, a, a new way of, uh, of, of telling the stories. It involved many people and it involved more than just VR. Really interesting. Is this project available for public? Um, so I think it's about to be relaunched in Paris for seven or eight months. 
so it's a, it's an escape room. So just like the void, you can go online and uh, and, uh, and book a session. And it's not easy to escape. I can tell you that. You guys seem to be very business savvy and full of great tips and things that you picked up. What would be one piece of advice that helped you personally, or perhaps you learned from someone else? in your business that you could share with other people? I think it's something very simple that you touched upon and it's going to sound incredibly, incredibly basic, but maybe because it's true is um, you need a lot of different talents to work in, in immersive technologies. Besides that, it's new. So there's a level of exploration and create like creative uh, uh, innovation. And the tip I have is, is this is nothing as important as the people you surround yourself with. You need, you know, you need 3D geniuses, you need sound geniuses, you need storytelling uh, adventurers. And um, rather than obsessing, I guess, about the tech, obsessing about the client and the strategy and, and everything, if you're, building, if you're building your business right now, your company right now, the one thing you should be obsessing about is building the right team. If you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, know what they want, have a work ethic, are motivated, uh, if you're pulling in the same direction, uh, then the rest will follow uh, eventually. I think the people is the most important thing in, in any business. That's a great piece of advice. Chris, thank you very much for your time. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Oli. Have a great day. Thanks, man. You too. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell with guest Christoph Mallet. This episode was produced by Abigail Bircham, Oliver Cadell, Gillian Duffy, and Giacomo Corpino and included music by Nobs Bergamo. If you enjoyed listening, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes, other episodes, and any bonus content. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.